This spring's budget process was business as usual for Planet Albany, but state lawmakers and Governor Kathy Hochul may not have it so easy in 2024 when crafting a taxing and spending plan for the Empire State based on economic forecasts and initial tax receipts for the current fiscal year. To consider what the tea leaves are telling us right now, we're joined by Nathan Gustorf, Executive Director of the Fiscal Policy Institute. Welcome back to the show, Nathan. Thanks for having me back. It's our pleasure. And we also have with us Andrew Perry, Senior Policy Analyst for the Institute. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. So I want to begin with the most recent cash report from State Controller Tom DiNapoli, which showed that tax receipts in April were about $11 billion, which fell below what the state was estimating for the beginning of our current fiscal year. What should we make of this initial amount? Is it reason to be concerned about our finances right now? So the first thing that we would say when you look at those cash receipts is that there is the monthly report, which is how much money has the state brought in in April, but there's also the state's overall fiscal position, which really is like how much money the state has in its bank account. And because receipts from prior years were higher, if you look at the projections, even just from the executive budget, the state's actually ahead of where state analysts thought that we would be just a few months ago. So about one to $2 billion over total receipts. So we take that to indicate maybe two things. First, there's no current concern. We're a little bit ahead of the ball. And two, there's just a fair amount of volatility in these month to month receipts. So some months are higher, some months are lower and there's no immediate cause for concern. There is a separate, fairly technical point that we wanna bring out here. And unfortunately it gets into some tax mechanics, but these seemingly subtle mechanics actually have a really significant impact on the timing and recording of state revenues. So in its simplest form, it gets to something called the pass-through entity tax, There are a lot of uh, high earning New Yorkers who are say partners in law firms or partners in financial firms. These are the owners of partnerships and LLCs. And these businesses can choose to pay an optional tax called the pass-through entity tax or the PTET. And that doesn't actually end up giving them any extra state tax liability, but it allows them to get a federal tax benefit. And this all gets into stuff from the 2017 Trump Tax Act that we don't really need to get into here. Suffice it to say, these businesses choose to pay that tax and then it's fully refunded. There are so many of these high earning partnerships and LLCs in the state of New York, particularly in New York City, that those payments, which are refunded, account for about $15 billion of the state's tax receipts. So that $15 billion has to get recorded in receipts And then remember, it's all refunded back to those business owners in order for this tax trick to work out. But the timing of those receipts, it doesn't all happen within the same year. So they pay it in one year, it's refunded in the next year. And this has caused really significant fluctuations in both the year to year and the month to month recording of tax receipts and refunds at the state level. We don't exactly know because we don't have the tax return data, but we think that those timing dynamics probably explain a lot of what's going on with the volatility in these April receipts. 
So if one month of receipts that are below expectations isn't uh, enough of an indicator for me to light my hair on fire and build a bunker, at what point should fiscal watchdogs and people in the division of budget begin to be concerned about uh, the state's current and, and future finances? Is it two months below expectations, three months below expectations, four and on? I mean, is there a threshold that we should use? It's a good question. The, the thing to look at specifically is basically the balance between these receipts and also the refunds. So remember this tax is paid and then it's refunded. Last year had very high payments early in the year and then really unusually high refunds throughout the year. So what we're looking at at FPI is how are those indicators going to appear really probably over the next three months? Does the pattern of high refunds continue or is this going to net out a little bit differently so that, say, by August or September, it's looking more like last year, but the types of income are just booked a little bit differently? So I would agree with you that the one month of data that we have is not enough to light your hair on fire. But I would I would push it a little further and say that the one month of data we have is really not data about the current fiscal year because, as Nathan says, the volatility is all driven by estimated payments that we think largely relate to this pass-through entity tax. And this is really a sort of a backward-looking indicator. It mostly relates to tax planning that was made over the last year or two. And last year had an unusually high surplus that we think was in part due to this, right? So if you take the two years together, it looks like the revenue position is still strong, but the timing related to PTED is imposing some year-to-year -year volatility. So I wouldn't argue that this is even the first data point. Now, at what point would I recommend lighting your hair on fire? You would really want to start to see a deterioration in the actual labor market, right? The actual economic fundamentals on which people are paying their taxes. And then you would want to see that accord with um, a dip in the current taxes that we're, that we're taking in. And so when we look at the economic data and we look at the current rather than the backward looking sources of personal income tax revenue, what we see is the opposite. I mean, we really, across a range of indicators, we're seeing sort of pretty resilient and high growth. So data that was released about two weeks ago on wages earned in New York State over the year of 2022 showed that wages grew 6.9% in 2022, which is continuing a pretty high rate of growth that we've seen in the recovery of the COVID pandemic. That's wages. Personal income is a broader measure of income because it includes non-wage income like capital gains and government transfers, both of which fell in 2022 such that the state division on budget thought that New York state personal income would fall. What the new data shows is that personal income in 2022 actually grew, it grew 0.8% according to the most recent data. And then even more timely data on wages in the state's private sector show that the state's labor market is still plugging along at as brisk a pace as ever over the last 12 months. So the April 2023 private sector wages, which is the most recent data we have, grew 8.3% from the prior year. So we're seeing all of these measures of sort of ro continued robustness in the state's labor market, robust economic activity. And accordingly, we're seeing taxes that are paid on current wages, right, rather than the backward looking estimated payments that Nathan has discussed, are 
continuing to um, sort of grow in line with, with where we think they should be in this April uh, 2023 cash report. Well, for listeners just joining us, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're talking about the state's finances with Nason Gustorf and Andrew Perry of the Fiscal Policy Institute. And pivoting then away from the April cash report and thinking about our future budgets in the context of the actual wages that New Yorkers are earning, what should we be thinking about the future multi-billion dollar budget gaps that have been projected for the future? Is it the case that the earnings that we're seeing and that you highlighted suggest that the future budget gaps that have been projected might not be as bad as budget officials are, are anticipating? So there are maybe two different things going on when you look at the budget gaps. And we've published a number of analyses on this topic because to some extent, budget gaps in the years after this upcoming fiscal year are really more of a sort of practical conservative budgeting practice than an indicator of structural deficits. So typically the division of budget does these projections and they try to be about right when it comes to spending. They kind of wanna know how much money are we really gonna spend at the state government level. But when it comes to revenue, they tend to be a little bit conservative. And that's probably a good thing because you wouldn't wanna overestimate the revenues that you bring in. But that also means that in those out years, you have spending in excess of your predicted revenues, but that doesn't actually indicate that you're going to have some sort of deficit in that year. It's just a matter of caution. So we've looked at the budget gaps that are projected currently, at least as of the executive budget, and they're generally in line as a percent of the budget with prior year budget gaps. What we'll be monitoring is whether the uh, new tax receipts change so as to make those grow. And if the budget gaps grow, then it would probably get to the point where it's no longer really accounted for by conservative revenue estimating and may indicate a a real fiscal problem for the state. And prior to the work of adopting next year's budget for April of 2024, is there any impact on the current spending that could be at play if we do see continued tax receipts that are below what the state projected? I think before you would get to making cuts, which I think as past recessions have shown is one of the last things you want to do in a recession as it tends to exacerbate a downturn. Before you get there, you would want to consider New York State's reserves. So historically, New York State has sort of lagged in building up its reserve funds. It's it's lagged other states. It's had relatively nominal amounts of reserves. And then since COVID, policymakers seem to have taken reserves a little bit more seriously, and we've actually used some of the fiscal surpluses over the last two years to really start to build those reserves to the point that, you know, we're now we now have reserves that are in line with what other states have and what are in line with what fiscal experts sort of think is a prudent amount of money to have in reserves. The reserves work in, in sort of two different ways. There's one pool of money that the state calls economic uncertainties, but it's really just part of the general fund. So it's really just part of the state's checking account. And they can deploy these reserves sort of as they see fit. And then they have a slightly more restrictive set of reserves. There's two funds called the Tax Stabilization Reserve and the Rainy Day Reserve Fund, which are part of the state's 
sort of state finance law statutes, and the statutes codify when you're allowed to make withdrawals. In the case of a revenue downturn, the tax stabilization reserve automatically makes payments to the state. So it automatically can fill in budget gaps up to a certain level. And then in the case of an actual economic downturn, and this is codified in the state law to define what an economic downturn means here, those rainy day reserves are going to be available to state lawmakers to fill in any gaps. So if there was a severe recession this year, which economists increasingly see as less likely, economists are sort of continuing to to push their forecasts of any downturn further out. But if there was a downturn, the state really does have the resources to fill in those gaps and get us into the next fiscal year when we could consider if uh, a fiscal gap remains, if it's appropriate to sort of cut into social services to balance budget or to raise some additional resources in a way that might be a little bit more progressive. Well, that is all the time we have today. We've been speaking with Nathan Gustorf. He's the executive director of the Fiscal Policy Institute. Thanks for joining us again, Nathan. Happy to be here. And we've also been hearing from Andrew Perry, the Institute's senior policy analyst. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having us. And for more Capital Press Room content, visit capitalpressroom.org or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you listen to us from an Apple device, make sure to leave us a rating and a review so it helps other people find the show. Support for the Capital Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capital Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.